thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Stripping down science. The Naked Scientists. Can spiders spin webs in zero gravity? How are memories stored? And is it true that humans couldn't survive for more than three months on raw food alone? Those are some of the questions that we're getting through this week because it is Sunday the 23rd of September and that means it's our Naked Scientist's question and answer show. My name's Chris Smith and we have a stellar lineup of luminaries here for you this week including our psychology and brain expert Ginny Smith. Hello Ginny. Hi there. And also physicist Dave Ansell. Hello Dave. Hello. He's waiting in the wings and our biologist Kat Arney. Hello Kat. Hello from me and this week I'll be finding out how scientists can wipe out memories of fear. And I'll be doing a kitchen science experiment to explain how railway trains can stay on the track. So if you have any questions for us, now is the time to call in. It's 0845 30 50 007 on the telephones. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can also send us an email, chris at thenakedscientists.com. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider. On the web at ukfast.co.uk. And straight out of the block, Stuart is on the line. Hello, Stuart. How are you, how are you doing? You all right? Yes, very good. What can we do for you? Yeah, um, it's an odd question. Um, came up in conversation at work. What shape web would a spider make if it were in space? Ooh, that's a hard one. Uh, mm. Dave, what, what do you think? I don't know. I've never... In space, there is microgravity. There's yeah. almost no gravity. There's um, nothing to align, get the spider to align itself. But I don't know whether a spider is aligning on gravity or whether it's doing it visually. Kat, your perspective? I reckon it might struggle to kind of... Because don't they kind of fling themselves around and, and make their webs? So I think it might struggle with that. And also, I, I remember the study where they gave spiders different drugs and saw the effects on their webs. So I wonder what would be the effect of spiders on drugs in space as well. OK, so you <laughs> answered the question by asking another one. <laughs> well, well, I'm pleased to say, Alan Boyd, who's working with us at the moment, he is, is one of our interns, found a wonderful paper which uh, is actually detailing this. NASA did do this experiment aboard Endeavour, the penultimate space mission using the shuttle. It went up last May, and I've got a, a little write-up, which is in Wired magazine, um, so I'll just quote from this, because it says, a pair of golden orb spiders called Gladys and Esmeralda were shot into space on uh, Endeavour in May. The experiment was part of a, a K-12 curriculum, which, when a school is back in session, will let students compare the behaviour of spiders kept in the classroom, as well as spider noughts, as they're dubbing them. They say, on Earth, these spiders, which are Nephila 
clavipes generally spin large circular webs uh, and they actually make webs that look like they've been chopped off at the top so they have a sort of horizontal across the top. When they spun the webs in space, the spiders' webs ended up completely circular. The spiders, which use gravity to orient themselves, seem unsure about which way to face at times, say researchers at the University of Colorado at Boulder who are behind the study. Golden orb spiders usually use gravity when building the long lines that radiate from the web's centre, occasionally letting go to drop to the ground. But when she lets go, Esmeralda, that's one of the spiders, doesn't have gravity to bring her down, so she just floats about instead of dropping. So I think, Stuart, the answer is that the, the pictures they've got on this uh, article and from NASA's own website show spiders that do do seem to make quite good webs, except they're, they're very much circular. They don't have that horizontal across the top. So the spider appears to be able to compensate for the absence of gravity and still orientates itself. How interesting. I mean, it, obviously, it's kind of... It, it's an odd one because you do think of it, it's a very 2D shape. And obviously now I'm thinking of you know 3D shapes in space like cocoons and things. I wonder if there would be other animals that would maybe struggle with trying to create, a, you know, thinking of the whole caterpillar to butterfly phase when they create the cocoon. I wonder if they'd struggle with that because if they are using gravity to obviously return themselves on that downward loop, if they can't do that, I wonder what they would end up for, wonder what strange shapes they would produce. Dave? I guess it depends whether gravity is a big a big effect on how they're growing because quite a lot of this sort of thing will, will be to do with kind of chemical things and electromagnetic forces. I don't know how much gravity is important in sort of embryology and things like that. Uh, certainly NASA did do a very nice experiment a few years back looking at how plants grow in space because one of the big questions is when you plant a seed why does the root always grow downwards and the shoot goes upwards? How does the plant know what's down? And it was an experiment done on the space shuttle that in fact proved it. it was on the Columbia mission, unfortunately the one that crashed, but the experiment survived and they managed to get it from the wreckage and it revealed that in fact in plant cells what you've got are lots of tiny grains of starch bobbing around inside the cell and under the influence of gravity they settle inside the cell and as they settle they push on a structure called the cytoskeleton which is a fine network of threads and connective tissue inside the cell that holds the cell together and the cell can sense this so it knows what direction is downwards and grown in space moss instead of growing in one direction grew in a funny spiral because it didn't have that so-called geotropism. Rachel's on the phone. Hello Rachel. Hi I was wondering why when I and when I wash my hair with just water, I lose fewer hairs than if I washed my hair with shampoo. Ooh, does shampoo cause hair loss? Cat, one for you. Well, this is an interesting one, and uh, it's important to know that we all lose quite a lot of hair every day. We all lose around about 100 hairs every day, which sounds quite scary, but obviously we have a lot, so it's all right. The other thing is that pretty much everyone uses shampoo, an awful lot of people use shampoo, and most people don't seem to lose loads and loads of hair. There is... Some there's probably the most strong argument I think is that the actual act of shampooing, the kind of building it up into a lava, you might be rubbing your head more vigorously, so you just are actually just dislodging hairs that are on their way out or have fallen out and are just kind of stuck in your hair. So in fact, you're not losing more hair; you're just washing them out more effectively. Um, there is some argument that maybe some of the chemicals in certain types of shampoo for particular people might damage their hair and cause it to fall out. But that tends to be a, a personal reaction to an individual shampoo, so switching your shampoo might help with that. My money's actually on the act of lathering up, just dislodging hairs that, that are coming out anyway. Rachel, I hope that helps you. Yes, thank you. All right, good to talk to you. Thanks for calling. 
If you'd like to join in on The Naked Scientist, tweet at Naked Scientist. We also have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash The Naked Scientist. We'll take you to that page or email chris at thenakedscientist.com. We're going to get experimental later in the show. So, Dave, why don't you give us a very brief update as to what you have in mind to prove to us experimentally this week for kitchen science? Well, this is a question which many people really haven't considered. It's why do trains stay on the tracks? Lots of people think it's obvious they've got these big flanges on the inside of the wheels and they kind of bash into the side of the tracks and it holds them on. But actually it's a lot more subtle than that. So I'm going to be doing an experiment involving some um, plastic pint glasses, some um, old squash bottles and a little railway track I've built um, on the corner of the studio here to try and explain how they actually go around the corner, which is a lot more subtle than it seems. It sounds obvious, but having seen Dave's demonstration, it's actually amazing, and I can't wait for you to do it again, actually. So why do trains stay on the tracks? Tell us if you think or you know what the answer is. Ginny, uh, Martin Mashachak says, my name's Martin, I have a question about the human brain. How much of it do we actually use? You hear this figure of 90% of it doesn't do much most of the time, trotted out quite frequently. Is this true? Well, the short answer is no. Basically, um, our brain is a really, really expensive organ. It takes a lot of energy to run a brain and it just wouldn't be evolutionarily sensible to keep expending all this energy on a brain if we weren't using most of it. Actually, we tend to see the phrase use it or lose it in terms of brain activity and neurons, which basically means that the more you use an area of the brain, the bigger it gets, the stronger it gets, the more neuronal connections you get. And actually, if you stop using that area, it will get taken over by something else that you're using more. Ginny, thank you very much. Okay, Kat, one for you. Uh, Sarah Turnbull says, Hi, Chris et al. Love the show. I've been meaning to write for a little while with this question. I heard a scientist make a comment that human beings could not survive for more than three months on raw food alone. I'm pretty sure it was Steve Jones. He made it as an offhand remark about us evolving an external stomach for digestion known as the frying pan. Kat, what do you think? Well, it's an interesting one because um, human beings have evolved um, to, to digest food as we've evolved the use of cookery. So from the development of fire as humans have evolved, we've evolved cooking skills along with that. It is possible to survive on a raw food diet, but there are some health risks associated with it. Now, um, some of the studies that have been done of people who have lived on raw food diets for a long time have shown that they tend to be underweight, so there's a risk of actually just not getting enough calories in you. Um, There's also, particularly for women, there's a risk of osteoporosis and not not getting enough minerals to make healthy bones, uh, minerals and vitamins. So that's also a problem. Again, with women, um, they can have uh, no periods or or irregular periods, so that can be a problem. And there's a big risk, actually, of food poisoning because uh, if you're not cooking food, one of the most important things that cooking something does is gets rid of the bacteria in it. So there is an increased risk of things like gastroenteritis and food poisoning from eating a lot of raw foods, particularly things like raw milk, but even salad vegetables vegetables. We know that things like E. coli outbreaks, they can be on salad vegetables and things like that. But what about, um, I went to Lyon and had steak tartare a few years back. Very nice it was too. That's just raw meat, isn't it? But it's still meat. I don't think there's any benefit from cooking that apart from the one you mentioned about the, the fact that you're going to kill any bugs in it. And what about people from Japan, for instance, who eat enormous amounts of raw fish? Well, there's certainly a lot of raw foods that you can eat that, that will be perfectly good for you. Um, some of the people who go for raw food diets are also vegetarians, so they'll say, well, I don't want to eat anything from animals or even vegan, which is it's really tough, <laughs> I should 
should imagine. I don't want to eat a vegan. No, don't don't want to eat anything from animals at all. So they would be vegans. Um, eating vegans, if they're raw, that would be part of a, a raw food diet, I'm sure. But yeah, you can eat raw some raw meats. You can certainly eat raw fish and obviously all fruits, nuts, grains, vegetables, all of these kinds of things, if you eat them raw, then that will be part of a, a raw food diet. But there are some health risks attached to it. But people can certainly survive on it, yes. I don't know whether the original um, quote might have actually been meaning if they if people lived on a normal diet they wouldn't and didn't cook it they wouldn't last for three months because I guess you need high quality food and you got to eat more of it. I think you do have to think quite hard about it if you're going to take up a diet like that. So we're giving this the official. <clears throat> are we? Are we saying it probably is more myth than fact? Uh, I th- yeah, I think you can definitely survive on a raw food diet as long as it's the right kind of raw food diet. Super. Uh, you're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, with Ginny Smith. No relation there, just a coincidence. Dave Ansell and Kat Arney. It's our Q&A phone-in this week. We're answering all of your science questions. Uh, meanwhile, we are, of course, surveying the science news, and Kat Arney has her finger on the pulse. Kat, what have you got for us this week? Well, this week I spotted uh, a really interesting story from the world of neuroscience. And stressful and scary situations like war, accidents, or even broadcasting live with the naked scientists do leave fearful memories imprinted in our brains. As these memories surface again, they can cause big problems for people in the form of conditions like post-traumatic stress disorder, that's PTSD. And writing in the journal Science this week, Thomas Agron and his colleagues at Uppsala University in Sweden have taken a big step forward in understanding how fearful memories get processed in the brain, which could actually lead to new ways to tackle the problems that they cause. Is it actually ethical to go scaring people in the lab? How do they do that? Well, it, it's not that nasty. They they used quite a well-established psychology technique to give people fearful memories, and it's called fear conditioning. So they had 22 volunteers, and they show them an image on a computer screen and then give them a, a mild electric shock. The next day, they show the image to them again without giving them a shock, but it does trigger a fearful memory of the previous day's shock, and you can measure that by looking at changes in their behaviour and also at nervous reactions like sweat on their skin. Bringing back a memory is one thing. What about getting rid of it? Well, the researchers then split the group of volunteers in half and for one half they repeatedly showed them the image just ten minutes after they'd reactivated the fear memory and this is what they call extinction treatment and this ten minutes is still within the time period when the brain is reconsolidating the memory. Now, for the other half, they repeatedly showed them the image six hours later, which is outside that reconsolidation window. And they found that for the first group, that because they'd seen the image so much without a shock, they'd stopped associating it with that fearful memory, and it had effectively been wiped out. But for the group who got this extinction treatment six hours later, they still had a fear response to the image. So what do you think is going on? Well, the scientists think that part of the brain called the amygdala is responsible for storing and recalling fear memories. And to test this, they brought the volunteers back three days later, popped them in a brain scanner, and then showed them the same trigger image. Now, the group that had been given the extinction treatment six hours later, they showed that the activity in their amygdalas was was linked to the fear memory. It was very active there. But no similar activity was seen in the group who got the treatment ten minutes later. So is this something that we can get on the NHS? (laughs) 
well, is this something doctors could actually do? I mean, being not, not trivialising it, is it something doctors could use sensibly to intervene in these sorts of problems? Well, at the moment, this is a very small study and it is very artificial. I mean, we don't all sit down and have traumatic memories and drilled into us with electric shocks and computer pictures. But the researchers have shown that they can intervene during this reconsolidation period for fearful memories and that this can help to get rid of them. Now, it's a long way from having a technique that doctors can use, but it's the first time that this kind of approach has been shown to work in people, so it is a good step in the right direction. Kat, thank you very much. This is The Naked Scientist, Dave Ansell, physicist, Ginny Smith, psychologist extraordinaire, I'm Chris Smith and Kat Arney, biologist extraordinaire, are all here waiting for your science questions. We've got Eddie on the line. Hello, Eddie. Hello, Chris. Uh, Nice to speak to you. Uh, It's a pleasure. Go ahead. How can we help you? I have a question um, with regards to rain. I just want to know what happens to the salt content uh, because we know that uh, um, rain obviously comes from the sea. It evaporates into the clouds and obviously it's carried to, to, the, to the land and then obviously it rains. But when it rains, you don't taste the, the salt. There's no salt in the, in the rain. Yeah, lovely question. Thank you for saying it in, Eddie. The answer is that the sun puts energy onto the Earth's surface, and that includes the ocean surface. And every square metre gets energy at the rate of, on average, about one kilowatt, so a 1,000 joules per second. And this gives energy to the particles of water in the sea. And dissolved in the sea are obviously some ions, sodium and chloride and lots of others as well. That's why the sea is salty. But the water molecules, although they are sticky and they stick onto other water molecules because they are what's called dipole molecules, when you give energy to the water molecule, it can escape when it has enough energy and break the bonds to the other water molecules, holding it into the water, and it can escape as water vapour. It isn't possible to give energy in the same way to the ions, or at least not sufficient energy, to make them boil off and get into a vapour state like the water. And this is because they are charged, and that charge on them makes them a lot stickier, and they interact with other molecules of water and other ions in the water far more strongly than a water molecule does. So it's far easier for water to escape at the temperatures that we see than those other iron species. They then go up into the air as water vapour until they fall in temperature, and this enables them when they also reach a certain height in the atmosphere and and interact with other water molecules and dust particles and, and even dandruff, actually, in clouds. And they form little droplets, and then you have a cloud... And if you make that air get even colder, because, for instance, the air has to rise and the air expands as it rises and the temperature drops, then you get precipitation. The water comes out of the cloud, and because just fresh water went up into the air, there's only fresh water to come back out of the cloud, and as a consequence, you get fresh rain. And that's why rivers and streams contain fresh water, but the sea is salty, because as the fresh water filters down through the land, it takes a small concentration of salts out of the land and out of the air too, back into the sea, where they slowly concentrate. And they're now at sort of steady-state concentrations, because if the sea were to become any more concentrated, other chemical reactions would kick in and remove some of the salt, or some of the other things as minerals in a solid form. So the sea is sort of now at a steady-state level of concentration. Lovely question. Dave, here's one for you. Hi, Naked Scientists. Steve Caffin here, calling from Singapore. I would like to ask the Naked Scientists if they think we would be able to read data information stored on DVDs, hard disks, and thumb drives in the future. This is assuming that we have advanced technology, but have somehow lost the historical records of the code or the computer language the data is written in. Keep up the great work, and I look forward to hearing your answer. 
So this is assuming that you've got the device, it's still in a perfectly working order, and if you had the thing to read it, it would be perfectly fine, but we've kind of lost all those. Could you work out what was on it in the first place? I think different ones are different difficulty. Something like a CD, which is, of course, sort of 1980s, if not 1970s technology. Um, if you looked at it with an electron microscope, um, you'd see lots of little pits on it. If you can um, go through those pits, they've got lots of ones and noughts. Um, there's not a lot of compression, certainly with an audio CD. And therefore, I would have thought that if you had some idea that there was some data on there and you had a look for it, you could pretty much, if you're a bright bloke and you're the kind of people who hang out in the computer science department, um, you'd be able to work out what was on it. Um, whereas if you're talking about something which was really heavily compressed, like an MP3, then you're going to have to know more about the um, how it was encoded, how to decode it. You, you don't just have sort of a, a series of numbers which indicate how loud the sound is. So you're going to have to um, work out a lot more. I'm not saying that we couldn't do it, but it would be a lot more hard work. Thank you, Dave. Kat, um, Floor in the Netherlands has been in touch and said, can tobacco be made less unhealthy? Uh, what Floor is referring to specifically is that some people bubble tobacco smoke through things like water, or, or of the view, in the opinion, that this will cleanse the smoke and make it less bad for you than just smoking a cigarette, for example. Uh, and also his um, point of asking this is in relation to medicinal application of marijuana. So what, what do we know about making tobacco less unhealthy? Well, this is a tough one because there basically isn't really a safe form of tobacco. Um, it's full of lots and lots and lots of different chemicals, uh, many of which are quite damaging. And the obvious one is nicotine which is uh, tobacco is basically a delivery mechanism for the drug uh, nicotine. It's an interesting one because from what I have gathered, things like using bubble pipes and that kind of thing, they, they don't actually take a lot of the chemicals out of the smoke. You're still burning it and the damaging chemicals are still going through the smoke and into your lungs. Um, in terms of marijuana, I think the original question asks uh, about whether it's just as damaging to, to smoke marijuana or mix it with tobacco and smoke it. And it is actually the act of burning tobacco and burning marijuana. When you burn organic matter, it releases certain chemicals, things like polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons. And these are some of the chemicals that cause damage to, to your lungs and, and to other parts of your body. Um, there's also all sorts of other chemicals that are in there. So partly the act of just burning stuff and breathing it in, breathing in smoke, is giving yourself a, a dose of chemicals. So, And even things like chewing tobacco, um, snuff, all of those things, the chemicals are still going to go into your body uh, and damage you in some way. So it's not really a great idea anyway. Doesn't really help them. Kat, no, thanks. Really. Uh, Louise is with us. Hello, Louise. Hiya, Chris. Hiya, guys. Um, nice to talk to you. Um, we were talking about this at work, and um, we were just wondering why it is that it seems to get dark all of a sudden when it's winter, whereas in summer it seems to get dark gradually. Yeah, I know the feeling. It's sort of doing that already, rather worryingly. Dave, what do you think? This is mostly to do with the rate at which the sun goes down over the horizon. If you think about the world being stationary and looking at the sun going past you, it sort of goes up and then it comes down and it goes up. And if you can sort of imagine it being below the horizon as it goes round you. Now, in the summer, then essentially the whole thing is kind of lifted up on the sky. So um, it sort of 
goes up really high, then it comes down. It's starting to kind of flatten out as it goes below the horizon, and then it comes back up again. And it's coming, rising and um, falling at relatively flat, which means it's kind of just below the horizon for a very long time. It takes a long time to get a long way below the horizon. It doesn't get dark very quickly. The same thing actually happens in the winter because... You're, you're looking at the sort of flat bits of this kind of wiggly sine wave at the, near the top, and so it's not going down below the horizon very quickly. But at the equinox around now, it's at the steepest part of the... Um, when it sets, it's at the steepest part of the curve, so it gets below the horizon the quickest. And the same thing happens in the equator, then it gets gets below the horizon very, very quickly. And so it gets dark much quicker at the equinoxes than it does in the mid- midsummer or midwinter. I'd wondered about that, actually. I'd, I'd really noticed it. Louise, you're not alone, because I spotted this and I thought, gosh, it's suddenly getting dark very quickly. Does yeah. that help you? Yeah, it does. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Good to have you on thank the programme. And thank you too, Dave. Now, this week has seen the announcement of this year's Ig Nobel Prizes. These are the awards for science that make you laugh and then make you think, allegedly. This year is no exception, and we're joined by one of this year's winners. It's Dr Ray Goldstein, who's based here at Cambridge, England, Cambridge University's Department of Applied Maths and Theoretical Physics. He is actually, though, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, because he's been to Harvard to collect his award. Hello, Ray. Hi, thanks for having me. Pleasure. So what was the award for? What did you do to win your Ig Nobel? Well, the award was given to two separate groups. Uh, The first, myself, uh, in collaboration with Patrick Warren, a research scientist at Unilever Research, and uh, Robin Ball, a physicist at the University of Warwick, for explaining the shape of a ponytail. Uh, And the second half of the prize went to Professor Joe Keller at Stanford University, who explained the swing of a ponytail. Uh, Why? Um, (laughs) I mean, is this a big problem? It must be if someone like you is working on it. Well, uh, The genesis of our half of the prize work uh, is really at the Unilever Research Labs in the UK. As you know, Unilever is a global manufacturer of personal care products, uh, including shampoos and conditioners. And for obvious reasons, therefore, they have great interest in the properties of hair. And for a number of years, uh, scientists, including Patrick at uh, Unilever, had been trying to understand difficult problems involving, say, the tangling of hair and in general, understanding the properties of bundles of hair, as in a ponytail. And they reached out to me uh, several years ago to, to join their team and, and to, to help them solve these kinds of problems. Now, I have to say, when I was first contacted by them, just like with the Ig Nobel Prize, uh, I first laughed hilariously. I actually thought this was a Nigerian email scam or something like that. Um, but uh, I soon began to realize that there was very interesting uh, physics there. And on my first visit to Unilever, uh, a bunch of us were sitting around the table, and they were explaining to me the scientific questions they were uh, after. And we were given um, what are called hair switches, which are commercial bundles of hair that are used to test shampoo and conditioner. They're about 25 centimeters long. They have about 10,000 hairs, and they're clamped at the top. And so, in fact, if you hold them vertically, it looks like a ponytail. And in trying to figure out how to get into this project of understanding the properties of large numbers of hairs, we realized that actually the shape of the ponytail was the right testing ground. That is, if we couldn't solve that problem and understand something that seems as simple as that, then we couldn't go any further. So we set ourselves the task of, of trying to explain the shape of a ponytail. Is it tricky? Because when you're dealing with a ponytail, you have lots of individual hairs, and they all have their own behavior as a material, and they're all interacting with each other, which means that there's not just one type of behavior, the individual hair, it's the, the behavior and how that behavior influences the behavior of all the other components in the ponytail. Exactly. So 
we now understand, and, and historically uh, much of this was understood as well, that uh, there are at least uh, three main features that matter for this problem. The first two are easy. Hair has elasticity. It resists bending, and, and so it tends to remain as straight as it, it is isolated. Um, hair also has weight, so gravity pulls it down, and that would tend to make a collection of hairs just hang vertically. But most importantly, hair has random curvatures or meanderings, and it's accounting for that. And as you said, this is a problem involving large numbers of individual and distinct uh, interacting objects, and that's where the difficulty lies in the theory. And so we borrowed some tricks from other areas in physics, uh, in particular the study of fluids uh, and the study of electronic systems, where there's the notion that all of this complicated randomness could somehow be accounted for if one knew just a few average quantities of the hair bundle. That is, instead of keeping track of 10,000 hairs, we'll just keep track of, say, the local orientation of the filaments in a bundle and just the local concentration of them, the number per unit volume. And so we formulated a theory using that idea that the effects of the randomness was some as yet unknown function of these quantities. And after a lot of uh, crank turning, theoretically, we came up with an expression which we call the ponytail shape equation. The hair comes in lots of different flavours, doesn't it? Or, or at least um, you've got people who have Chinese hair, which tends absolutely. to be quite different in characteristic than people who are, say, blonde and have that very fine, wispy hair, like my son, for example. So does the equation have a component or a parameter that accounts for that ethnicity? Exactly. It turns out that this pressure, the magnitude of this pressure and the, the scale of radius of the ponytail at which the pressure disappears is very crucially dependent on the average squared curvature of the filaments and their stiffness. So it, basically like a spring, if you have a, a curly piece of hair and you were to flatten it between two sheets, you'd have to do work to compress it. And so the more curly the hair, the more work you have to do, the greater the pressure pushing out. So in principle, there's a way of sort of cataloging different types of hair by the pressure with which they push out of a bundle. Does that mean then that now if you take that equation, you can model hair much more accurately? And so computer games designers, people making Hollywood movies where they don't want to pay extras, they can pay a computer. Instead, can make much more lifelike and realistic renditions of hair, which I understand has always been a major headache prior to now. It has been a major headache, absolutely. And there are lots of groups that have made wonderful progress on this, including a particularly interesting uh, work in Paris. Um, but the uh, incorporation of this uh, bundle effect is something which we think could be an exciting new twist on this that could actually make things much more realistic. And, and we hope in the future to be able to think about that as well as about um, what might be called the hairodynamics problem, that is how hair interacts with airflow, as in when you wave your head or you're in the wind. So how did this go down in front of the Ig Nobel ceremony? You had oh, about, I, what, I, one and a half minutes to tell the story, didn't you? Uh, yes. Well, in fact, since there were two parts to the prize, we each had 30 seconds. Uh, so we, we distilled this down to the essence. In fact, we, we joked that um, in 2012, the search for understanding deep properties of the universe was partially uh, succeeded, successful in the sense that the Higgs boson appears to be found. And of course, that's supposed to be the explanation for the origin of mass. And we have come up with an explanation for the origin of volume. Ray Goldstein, thank you very, very much. Uh, he is from the Department of Applied Maths and Theoretical Physics at Cambridge University and is celebrating winning an Ig Nobel Prize for that piece of work this year. If you've ever walked with hundreds of other people to a football match, or the recent Olympics perhaps, then you will have been part of a group dynamic. 
Studying group behaviour has a number of important applications, so Planet Earth podcast presenter Richard Hollingham joined behavioural ecologist Dr Andrew King at the Royal Veterinary College in Hertfordshire. They met inside one of the rooms that's part of the Structure and Motion Laboratory. It was filled with tanks of stickleback fish to find out how personality and decisions made as a group, such as in shoals, tell us more than you ever thought possible. We take individual fish and we put them in this arena which we have to our left here and this arena has individual tanks with lanes in it in which we can test how bold each fish is. So the tank has a very scary shallow end and a very kind of friendly deeper end and what the fish tend to do is stay in the safe end. The number of occasions and how long they spend at the scary end gives us an indication of how bold those fish are. And so what we then do is we get an order of how bold fish are from 1 to 100, for example. Each one is, what, about 3 or 4 centimetres long, lovely, glinting, shiny colour. They have different personalities. Yes, so what we find is that when we put them in these lanes in which we're looking at how much exploration they do, that they do vary considerably according to the identity of the fish. And the important thing is that this variability is consistent within an individual. So fish A will be bold on day one, and if we retest him one week later, he'll also be bold on day seven. And the great thing is that we found is that when we collect the fish from the tank, the order which we catch the fish correlates with their boldness score in the tank. So if they're caught first, they're extremely bold in the tank. And if they're caught last, they don't go anywhere in the tank. They're extremely shy. So it's a really nice indication that what we're measuring is something real. So you've got these categories of quite scared, quite bold? Yeah, it's, a, it's called a bold shy continuum. So it's a, it varies according to the fish. Once we have that, then we put them in these tanks which we have to our right-hand side. So these are much smaller individual tanks, all numbered in a, in a rack of shelves. And each tank is in the same water system, the same filtration. And each fish stays in here during the behavioural tests, and we feed each fish so we know every fish gets the same amount of food. We control their social environment so they can see each other. They're very social animals, so we don't want to deprive them of that. And we rotate them so they don't get used to being next to certain neighbours. What this means then is that we have individual fish that we know how bold they are, we know how much food they've been getting, we know they haven't been interacting with any males or females recently, and we combine these fish into different categories of bold or shy individuals, and we make up shoals composed of mostly shy, mostly bold, a mix of the above. And what the idea is to try and test what combination of these different personality types creates a winning team, if you like. What combination of these personalities creates the best shoal? So a shoal might consist of all bold or all a little scared or a mix of the two? Yes, exactly. And in the wild, what we find, if you try and catch a population, it's hard to catch a whole population, but if you catch a sample, then what you tend to find is that you get lots of shy individuals and relatively few bold individuals. So what we try and do is try and work out why on earth that combination would be a crucial or optimal combination of fish to have. So we make these different shoals and we give them tests like try and find food in this new novel environment or try and avoid this predator and then we see which of these different shoals performs best. Now is this really to just understand shoaling and understand the process by which fish move as, as a mass? One aim is to understand exactly how those individuals shoal, what rules they're using, how they follow fish, are they following all of their neighbours, one, two, four, five neighbours? 
and that relates to a lot of work in kind of flocking animals and shoaling fish and flocking birds. But the other thing that we want to try and work out is if animals have this personality, why on earth is it adaptive? Why should you vary? So this is trying to get to the grips of it might be beneficial when you combine all these individuals, individuals do better by pairing up with those which are different from them. Why do this? I mean, it's interesting, but what's the point of it? From a pure behavioural ecology perspective, we want to understand the evolution of these personality differences. But from a broader perspective, I do also do work with human groups and different ungulates and primates as well, and to try and work out what combination of personality types and characteristics make a winning team is of interest for economists, basically anyone who's interested in information sharing in group kind of societies. Maybe it's a little bit of a jump, but it works surprisingly well across these different species. That's incredible that there are basic rules, or this suggests there are basic rules underlying the way fish or higher animals or, or us interact. Definitely, and one of the things that keeps emerging from my research is leadership and followership. There's two social roles that these individuals adopt, and there are surprisingly common principles across many different species, from fish to birds to humans to ants. Andrew King from the Royal Veterinary College on the fascinating applications of studying bold and shy fish. That report was from Richard Hollingham, and you can hear a longer version of that interview on the Planet Earth podcast. To find that, simply follow the links at thenakedscientists.com slash planet earth. From protons to photons and gluons to muons, The Naked Scientists, science that's fundamentally more fun. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith, Dave Ansell, Katani and Ginny Smith and we're answering your science questions for you. If you have a question for us, tweet at Naked Scientists or email chris at thenakedscientists.com. Let's talk to Christina. Hello. Hello. What can we do for you? Basically, I just have a, a, a question. It's possibly a bit complicated. When it came to a friend of mine who's a farmer uh, talking about the UK badger coal and the badger TB crisis, I couldn't quite get my head around all of the different arguments. Would it be possible for you to explain the science behind why we need the coal and what ways we could help both the badgers and the farmers? Okay, so this is a very complicated and very emotive issue and it mixes science, uh, cute furry animals, commercial interests and politics and with these kind of complicated issues there's obviously no real simple answers to it. Now the government are proposing a badger cull in England that could see as many as 100,000 badgers killed and that's a third of the national population. So that's quite a big thing and not great if you're a badger or someone who loves badgers. Now on the farmer's side they're arguing that the wild badger populations harbour the bacteria responsible for bovine TB and this is a a germ called mycobacterium tuberculosis now it's very closely related to human TB and it can also cause TB in humans although it's a very low risk you really have to get very close to cows with it but it is a big problem for cattle farmers and it's responsible for a huge number of animals having to be destroyed every year there is some evidence it can get into milk but the thing is if you pasteurise milk then that's absolutely fine and there's no risk to consumers but They say that badgers do spread the TB germs around through uh, badgers' urine and faeces and cows only need to pick up a relatively small dose of bacteria to be infected. So in theory, getting rid of badgers would stop them bringing TB onto farms and it would protect cows and it would protect the farm's interests and the money that it costs to control TB and all this kind of stuff and that would be great. Now, on the other hand... 
there's a lot of people who say that a cull will not be effective. Now, there was a big randomised trial of badger culling and it showed that culling is only really going to make a small difference to TB infections in cows and it might actually make the problems worse because if you start disturbing badgers and trying to kill them, they'll scurry away into other locations and also if you do manage to kill a lot of them, then you have all these empty badger sets that could potentially be infected and then new badgers will come in, start interacting with the population there and it's just going to spread and potentially could get worse. There's also there's no way of telling whether like a random badger has TB or not. So people, they're proposing that you just shoot badgers on sight. So the problem is you're not selecting between healthy badgers and diseased badgers. So that's a problem. And there's also a public risk of having people out at night with shotguns. Again, it's not a great idea. Now, the only way that it could work to do a, a cull would be you'd have to kill a huge number of badgers in a very big area, at least 150 square kilometres, in a very short time. So that's at least in, in two weeks, in less than two weeks. Now, this is going to be very difficult and very expensive. It's not going to completely reduce TB outbreaks anyway in cows, and it would cost farmers probably more than they would lose from bovine TB. It's also worth noting that other animals can actually spread bovine TB, and that includes deer and foxes so it's a bit of an unwinnable battle. Now where do we go from here? How can we help farmers? How can we help badgers? Now there's an argument to say that actual better farming practices could do a lot to curb infections so controls on moving cattle around, doing more to keep badgers out of farms and out of you know the food sheds where they store cow food. And actually, there's a lot of work going on into vaccinating badgers. There's currently an injectable vaccine. It's obviously quite hard to trap and inject quite a lot of badgers. But there are proposals that really should be worked on an oral vaccine for badgers, so you could leave it out in their food. Um, and that would probably be a really good way forward without having to kill lots of them. Thank you, Kat. Where do you stand on this, Christina? Oh, uh, I, I've no idea. Sort of, I, I want the best for the farmers and also for the badgers, if possible. I mean... Obviously, the vaccine would be a good idea if, if, if it were viable, but I understand it's very expensive and it only really works if you vaccinate badgers who don't already have TB. Quite, and that's yeah. the point, isn't it? Because we just don't know which badgers are, are bad badgers and which are good badgers and therefore need the vaccine and those that don't. So it's very, very difficult. Precisely, yes. Yeah. Well, it's a very good question. Thank you for, for raising it. It's a very important issue. And thank you, Kat, for that very comprehensive answer. Uh, that was Christina. Uh, one for you, Ginny. Uh, Christina, another Christina, says, As a teacher, I'd like children to understand more about how learning happens, the biological basis. And I've been fascinated to grasp the physical manifestation uh, as my education focused on neurotransmission of learning uh, as actual formation of connections between nerve cells. So could you tell me a little bit more about how memories are actually stored in the brain? Well, memory is a really interesting area because it isn't just one distinct thing. We have lots of different types of memory. So a distinction that most people probably know about is short-term versus long-term memory. So your short-term memory allows you to remember around seven things for a short time. So say you look up a phone number, you're trying to remember it, you'll tend to repeat it to yourself. And this is actually how the brain works for your short-term memory. It's basically repeating the thing over and over again. So I'm sure everyone's had the experience of looking up a mobile number, getting distracted and completely forgetting it and having to look it up again. And that's because your short-term memory can only store these things as it's repeating it to itself, basically. But what's actually happening when I'm going from that repetition where I know I know it and don't 
whatever you do, say any numbers while I'm trying to remember the phone number because they will interfere between that and then I know it's in my brain and I can call it up whenever I want to. What's actually physically happening? So that's the change from short-term memory to long-term memory. Um, And that involves an area of the brain called the hippocampus, which consolidates your memories and takes them from the short-term memory to the long-term memory. And that's generally done by repetition. Um, And we think that basically you're forming new synaptic connections. So you're actually connecting new cells in your brain. And the more times you go over this same piece of information, the stronger that connection becomes and the more likely it is to be stored permanently. And it actually links with what we were talking about earlier when we were talking about reconsolidation. So you can only reconsolidate a memory once it's been consolidated for the first time. And the more times you reconsolidate it, the stronger it becomes if it's the same memory, and that's how you can influence it. So if you practice change does it make perfect. Exactly. It's all about repetition, repetition, repetition. Don't we know it? Ginny, thank <laughs> you. Uh, here's an interesting one. Hi, this is Lisa Marie in Taos, New Mexico. This is kind of a strange question, but I was wondering why my voice sounds so different on a recorded device than how I think I sound. Almost everyone I know has had that experience where they hear themselves on a recorded device and think, wow, do I really sound like that? And do we hear our own voices differently than how others hear us? Thanks. Do you guys have the, the same sort of radio phenomenon? You listen to yourself and think, God, is that me? It took me a long time to get used to hearing myself on the radio. Yeah, I, I think I sound completely different to how I think I sound. Cat? Yeah, absolutely. It's everyone, when you start doing radio, it's like, oh, God, I hate the sound of my voice. <laughs> Terrible, isn't it? Um, why does it happen, though? The reason is quite simple, really. Um, what you have when you have sound coming into your ears, when I'm listening to someone else speaking to me, I'm just getting sound vibrations in air coming through the air. They go into my ear canal, the bit you can stick your fingers in on either side of your head. They hit your eardrum, and the eardrum is a flat sheet of tissue, which when the air vibrations hit it, it makes the eardrum vibrate in sympathy with the vibrations in the air. Those vibrations are then transmitted via a series of three tiny bones into what's called the cochlea. And the cochlea is the inner ear, and in there is a structure which has a long membrane which is fat at one end and thin at the other. And because its thickness changes, its stiffness changes along its length, and this means that some bits of it resonate at some frequencies and other bits resonate at other frequencies. And sticking into it are structures called hair cells, and these hair cells will be vibrated more or less according to which bits of that structure are vibrating and the vibrations transmitted into the hair cells make the hair cells become electrically active and when the cells are electrically active they fire off impulses into what's called the auditory nerve and that then sends the signal down into the brain stem and then it gets projected onto the part of the brain that decodes your ability to hear. So when you are listening to sounds coming from outside that's what's happening but when you're actually making sounds yourself In other words, your vocal cords are opening and closing and creating puffs of air that themselves create resonances inside your throat and your mouth. Some of those resonances are going to be transmitted into the bones of your head and your skull. The bones will conduct the sound also to the cochlea. So the cochlea will also get sounds from inside your head. So when you speak, you hear both the sound coming through the air and you also hear the sound of your bones vibrating. And that is why, when you speak yourself, you think you sound different to what you sound when people play something back of having recorded you earlier. 
because what you're actually hearing is the two sounds superimposed. When you hear the recording made outside your head, that's the pure sound of what you really sound like. And, yep, believe you me, it's pretty painful to listen to um, because it's very, it's very much a sort of self-conscious thing. Ginny? Um, one of the other Ig Nobel Prizes, we spoke to one of the Ig Nobel Prize winners, but we're actually a pair of Japanese scientists who inventors really who invented a device they called the speech jammer which actually played your own voice back at you at just a few milliseconds delay i believe um and it's so disrupting to hear your own voice back with that slight delay that it basically shuts people up if they're talking too much perfect well i have to get one of those i'm just kidding okay dave uh, let's get experimental then you teased us earlier and said can you tell us why a train stays on the rails. You said that this sounds simple but is more subtle than that. What's the problem then? Well, the obvious way that people think trains stay on the rails is that a train wheel has got a flange on the inside, so a bigger disc on the inside. And um, when this kind of bumps into the rail, then it kind of turns the wheel around a bit and it carries it, carries it going on in a straight line. And this does happen sometimes. It um, actually happens on toy trains. So toy trains, the corners are very, very sharp and they work like that. And also if sometimes you go around an incredibly sharp corner, so sometimes on points or I know there's one somewhere just sort of south of the river in London, um, and you go around a very, very sharp corner and it makes this horrible squealing noise. noise. Yeah. Going around the corner like this, the flanges are kind of grinding against the inside of the rail. It makes a horrible, horrible noise. And you do get round but it's not something you want to be doing at 100 miles an hour. Do trains have differential like cars do? They don't. They actually have a completely solid axle with the wheels attached absolutely solidly. So you get the problem when you go around a corner that the outside um, wheel should be going further than the inside wheel. And they're both turning at the same rate. So you really want the outside wheel to be bigger than the inside wheel. Not trivial to achieve. And is that part of the reason why also when you go around a very sharp corner you would get a problem? Yeah, you will also get it, start getting slipping when one wheel's got to slip. They do actually, in order to reduce the noise, they kind of inject grease onto the rail just before the train goes in but it still doesn't work very well and it makes a horrible noise usually history provides an interesting narrative or a solution in this circumstance so what does history tell us about that the early railway engineers and, and how they encountered this problem well this was certainly a problem um, they started off making horse-drawn railways so in the kind of 1820s and early even in, back in the 18th century they started off with wooden rails and they started going on to steel rails and they had this problem trying to keep things on the rails um, they started off by putting flanges on the wheels or sometimes even had flanges on the rails so you'd have a normal straight wheel and it'd be running along so you've got simple cylindrical wheels with flanges and I've got a model here to show you what happens with a cylindrical wheel. So I've got a slightly sloping board and I've got two rails which I've made out of two pieces of pipe insulation, just sort of foam tubes. Um, and I've got various different wheels I can roll down it. It's also got an aesthetic curve. Is that by design? It's bit of both. It sort of happened by accident that my pipe insulation has been sitting in the loft of my garage for a long time and bent a bit, but it's also convenient because a straight piece of railway is easy to, easy to stay on. A bit of a curve adds a bit of challenge. So we're looking for your surrogate railway wheels to actually follow the curve as it goes down. That's the idea. So I've got a straight cylinder here, which was originally a squash bottle I've chopped the top off. And if I try rolling this down... Well, there's absolutely no mistaking that. I mean, it, within seconds it was off the rails, quite literally. Exactly. It starts off going in a straight line, and as soon as the um, rails curve out of the way, it falls off. 
Now, as people started to make railway wheels by casting them rather than making them like an old wagon wheel, they tended to be slightly conical in shape. Uh, This is because if you want to get it out of a mould, it's a lot easier to get a cone out of a mould than a cylinder because everything kind of gums up. And so I've made some railway wheels here which are conical. So I've made them with two plastic pint glasses and um, I've tried taping two of them um, bottom to bottom so it's wider on the outside than in the middle. And that kind of looks like it might work. It looks a bit like a Diablo, doesn't it? The thing you would normally wheel along a a string. So you've got two glasses glued base to base looking like a Diablo and you're going to put that on. You'd think that would work quite well, actually. It sort of has a look of some flanges. It might hold it on. We can give it a go. Oh, that was interesting. Unlike the straight tube, which just sort of fell off but carried on going straight, that one went a bit wrong and then it went a lot wrong. So it sort of completely went off the rails very abruptly. It sort of went in the, the opposite curve to the one which the rails were going on. And in the opposite direction, yeah. So it went off in the wrong direction. Um, so this is because as soon as it goes slightly wrong, you have got one wheel a different size than the other. But, but the in... one which is pushing it away i.e. in the wrong direction, is the bigger one. Yeah, so the one on the inside of the rail curve is now bigger than the one on the outside of the rail curve, so it actually turns in the wrong direction, and it makes make those on a beautiful corner, but off into the woods. So that gives a hint as what the right answer is, and that's to put your two cones together with the wide ends together. So I've taken the two glasses and taped them together with the wide ends together, and so you've got two cones going away from that. We'll give that a go. Beautiful. It just follows the curve perfectly. So is that because there's now a restoring force pushing it sideways the right way as the curve kicks in? An easy way to think about it is as soon as it goes slightly wrong to the right, the right-hand wheel gets bigger than the left-hand wheel, and if the right-hand wheel is bigger than the left-hand wheel, it turns to the left. And so it follows. The, so as soon as it goes wrong, it follows the curve round, and it gets back into the middle of the rails. This can also produce a slightly interesting problem, um, which is if you deliberately push it off in the wrong direction so it starts going, uh, so it's going off, it should correct itself. So you rolled it with quite a strong angle in the wrong direction to the curve and it restored round to follow the curve naturally again. But what it can do is an overcorrect, and so it starts, starts to wiggle down the rails. And this is why, particularly if you watch old films with railway engines on them, and the, pe- the trains just sort of rock gently side to side, this is the wheels going up and down the tracks. You say old trains. Have they got some clever way of damping it today, then? They've basically played a lot with the dynamics of the bogies, and they've made the, um, the wheels inside the bogies be able to move slightly and tuned everything so as it doesn't happen at the kind of speeds where it's driving. There's a lot of research being put in in the sort of 60s and 70s, which sort the problem. It's amazing what you can do with a drinks bottle, two bits of pipe lagging and a polystyrene table tilted at about 25 degrees. Dave, thank you for that amazing explanation. And you've written this up on the web. Yep, it's nakedscientist.com slash kitchen science and I've written it all up and there's a nice video to show you what to do. How it all works. So you can find it there, nakedscientist.com slash kitchen science. Dave, thank you. Right, Hannah Critchlow has been looking at uh, doing a crossword instead of a diet. The Naked Scientist's Question of the Week, brought to you in association with the How to Wisman Foundation, supporting science and education from alpha to omega. This week, we exercise our brain power to find out how we can best shift those extra few pounds. So my name's Gary Lester from Buckinghamshire, and my question is, can I think myself thin? So can I eat a really large pudding and instead of hitting the treadmill, do a math problem instead?
So could, for example, completing a crossword counteract the calorific content of all of those custard creams that I ate last night? We turn to a professor of brain energy. I'm David Atwell, and I work at University College London, where my lab studies brain energy use. We're used to the idea of doing exercise to consume energy and reduce body weight, but the brain also uses energy to power our thinking. So can we use up as much energy by thinking hard as we can by going to the gym? Given the epidemic of obesity in the population, should we be encouraging people to do, let's say, maths problems rather than going running? Information is coded in the brain as electrical signals. These are generated by the entry of positively charged ions, sodium and calcium, into the nerve cells. These ions then need to be pumped out of the cells again, and it's this pumping that uses most brain energy, which is provided as oxygen and glucose in the blood. In fact, when you're sitting quietly, the brain consumes about 20% of the body's energy, say about 20 watts. So about 20% of the food you eat goes to power your thinking if you do no exercise. Now, when you change what you're thinking about, there are changes of brain energy use, but these are small because some nerve cells increase their signaling while others decrease their signaling. As a result, brain energy use changes by only a few percent, perhaps a few watts. In contrast, when you exercise energetically, the high energy use of muscles can double the body's energy use, increasing it by over 100 watts. So the bottom line is that the energy use associated with thinking can't be dramatically increased to reduce body weight, and there's just no alternative to keeping on doing that physical exercise. Hmm, perhaps a run for me tonight then. But is there any other way that we can cleverly use our brains to think ourselves thin? We weigh up the options with Professor of Ingestive Behaviour Marion Hetherington from Leeds University. Thoughts can guide behaviour so that you can avoid temptation and so that you can guide your behaviour towards a healthier choice. Dieters often have to amend their behaviour in order to avoid temptation and to resist eating foods which are not permitted. Therefore, Thinking yourself thin is not enough. You also have to have cues to remind you to stay on your diet goal. Thinking yourself thin, therefore, is really about planning ahead and having a strategy and following it. And Evan AU agrees, stating on the forum that thinking before eating the pudding might result in pouring on less cream. And thinking about walking to the corner store instead of driving might help too. Well, with that weighty issue resolved, we make a move to try and rejuvenate ourselves. Hi, my name is Casey Farah, and I've been feeling a little bit old recently. I was trying to reverse this, and I wondered, would a self-born marrow transplant reverse the aging process thanks so could infusing yourself with stem cells from your own bone marrow reverse the aging process to help us all look and feel younger for longer send us your thoughts you can tweet at naked scientists right on our facebook page email chris at the naked scientists.com or join in the debate on our forum which is at naked scientists.com slash forum Hannah Critchlow. Well, that is it for this week. Unfortunately, we have run out of time, but thank you for all of your questions and do please keep sending them in. The email address is chris at thenakedscientists.com or you can fill in the feedback form on our website, nakedscientists.com. Now, speaking of feedback, we are running a very important survey at the moment. You go to nakedscientist.com slash survey. We're asking you to tell us what you like and don't like about what we do, what we should be doing more of, and what we should be doing less of. 
as an added incentive if you are in the first 10 names that are picked out of our hat on 12 12 12 in other words the 12th of december 2012 then you will win a 10 pound amazon voucher so please fill in the survey it will be enormously helpful to us and to diana o'carroll who is actually doing her phd on how people consume programs like this so you'll be helping real research as well nakedscientist.com slash survey and you have until 12 12 12 to get your name in the hat to win £10 worth of Amazon vouchers. Thank you very much to our production team, Ben Valsler, Martha Henriquez, Alan Boyd, Hannah Critchlow and Tom Simpkins. Join us next week to find out about the ageing process and dementia. Until then, thank you for listening and goodbye. The Naked Scientists podcast comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, the STFC, the Natural Environment Research Council and UK Fast. For more cutting-edge science, join us online at nakedscientists.com. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.